0: Hello, folks, and thank you again for joining us for our first word-for-word reading of the night. Paula and I are thrilled to have Joan F. Smith with us tonight. She's a novelist, essayist, and dance instructor from Massachusetts. She was the 2021 Writer-in-Residence at the Milton Public Library and was formerly the Dean of the uh, Southern New Hampshire University Online MFA program. Uh, Joan studied creative writing and social sciences at Providence College and received her MFA in creative writing from Emerson. And she does her best writing on airplanes and her worst with no caffeine. (laughs) Her prose uses humor to explore the themes of unanswerable questions and the intersection between truth and lies and has appeared in various publications, including The Washington Post and The Mary Sue. And her 2021 debut novel, The Half-Orphan's Handbook, about a young girl's struggle to make sense of her father's suicide, was praised as a masterclass in prose and character by New York Times bestselling author Laura Taylor namey And her second novel, The Other Side of Infinity, which we'll be getting a sneak preview of tonight, is coming from Firewall and Friends, a imprint of Macmillan in April of 2023, which is very exciting. Joan lives in Boston, with in the Boston area, with her husband and kids, and when she isn't writing, she teaches dance, travels, exercises, works in higher ed, mentors writers, and wrangles her kids. You can find out more about Joan at her website, joanfsmithbooks.com. Please help me in welcoming Joan to tonight's event.
1: Hey, everybody. Can you hear me okay?
0: I can hear you you fine. Okay. All right, the floor is yours.
1: (laughs) All right, I'm going to kick us off with uh, reading, actually. So one small disclaimer is this book is uh, in the works. So we're about six and a half months out from publication. So um, word for word, this may not be exactly what you read in April, but it's going to be pretty close because I'm pretty much done with it. all right, so this is from The Other Side of Infinity, which is my sophomore novel. novel. Uh, it's been pitched as uh, a young adult, uh, they both die at the end, meets the butterfly effect movie from a little while ago. Um, and in it, a teen uses her gift of foreknowledge to help a lifeguard save a drowning man, only to discover that her actions have suddenly put his life at risk. Um, So I'm going to read an excerpt of chapter one. And um, one other thing I should mention before I begin, this is a dual point of view novel. So um, it's alternating chapters between our lifeguard, whose name is Nick, and our uh, teenage girl with the gift of foreknowledge, whose name is December. Chapter one, Nick. Drowning was quiet. That was drilled into my head from day one of certification class. And even though it was hard to believe, I was prepared for that. Every time I sat on the sun-baked cement across from the lifeguard chair, breathing in the smell of chlorine, coconutty sunscreen, the occasional drift of cut grass from the new landscaper, I reminded myself, head up, Nick. Some of the kids in my CERT class said they listened to podcasts while on duty. One earbud snaked into their ear, but not me. I rotated my position on schedule. Keeping my shoulders squared to the pool. The red rescue tube with its crisp white letters. I always traced the D in guard, balanced on my bathing suit shorts like a foam safety bar on an amusement park ride. I'd scan the pool as I'd been trained, up the trio of long lanes, the barriers bobbing obediently. Mr. Francis, the biology teacher at my high school, working his way up and down as he did every morning at 10 o'clock, a traditional individual medley butterfly, backstroke, breaststroke, and freestyle, each of the 16 laps ended with an easy flip turn before he returned to his coffee and Sudoku puzzle. In the water, Mr. Francis didn't cry out. He didn't shout, Nick, help me. He didn't crash during a flip turn or get caught in the lane line. Instead, what caught my eye was the most minute motion or really the absence of motion of the only other person at the pool that morning, a girl sunbathing beside the lifeguard chair. I'd only spotted her around our complex once or twice before. Here, she shielded herself with a sun hat, one of those mom-looking ones worn by girls in the 50s, propped over her face instead of on her head. Black and white with geometric hexagons, the hat looked like someone had taken a soccer ball, sliced it clean in half, and dropped it on an oversized frisbee. From my vantage point on the dock, All I could see was the hat and her long, tanned legs, which I determinedly did not stare at, even though they were what my grandma would have called a great pair of gams, because I was not in the business of objectifying people. Her bare feet bobbed in rhythm to music I couldn't hear. People say these things happen in the blink of an eye or a split second, and I guess cliches are what they are because they're true. In no time at all, Mr. Francis wound down lap eight, backstroke. Mrs. O'Malley's Chevy Lumina pulled up to the unloading spot full of pool gear, and the girl's foot, tapping to what seemed to be an up tempo tune, abruptly stopped. Something in the air felt wrong, off. A gnawing sense of dread poured into me, like the way mom dribbles icing on cinnamon rolls, immediate and encompassing, creaking into places it didn't belong. In this roughly three second span, it dawned on me that all I heard was the wind not the churning swirl of water generated by Mr. Francis's smooth zippy breaststroke. My focus snapped to the pool. Mr. Francis lay floating when only seconds before he'd been swimming. Something that looked like strawberry juice, blood, of course it was blood, marred the water on the left side of his head. I scrabbled to my feet, the red rescue tube clutched in my numb fingers. My heart pounded everywhere but in my chest. My ears, the sweaty backs of my knees, my stomach. I prepared to dive in, my brain screaming, do it, Nicholas, go get Mr. Francis. Will he need CPR? Is this a heart attack? No, no, there's blood. I need to do CPR. It's 30 compressions per minute. Followed by a breath. What's the song? What's the song to keep him be? They sang it on The Office. It's the Bee Gees staying alive. But my feet wouldn't move. I glanced at them, sunscreen glowing white on my white toes. They were glued to the hot, pebbly cement, fiery coals beneath my skin. My knees jerked forward in preparation for my dive, but nothing. It was as if the soles of my feet had grown roots shooting through the cement and burrowing deep in the ground below. Again, I willed myself to move. Once more, move, Nick, move, move, move. All of this, only fractions of seconds, another blank or wink of time but long enough for the girl with the no longer tapping foot to tear the hat from her face and launch herself from the lounge chair into the pool in three athletic and graceful strides. Mid run, she locked eyes with me. Why are you standing there? Come on, she shouted. Do something. As if her words released me from a harness, I lunged into the water with an ugly, painful slap. Punishment for not moving. Underwater, my brain cleared even further. I gritted my teeth together. Why hadn't I moved? When I surfaced, the girl was within feet of Mr. Francis who still floated very much the wrong way. Support his neck and flip him over, I called, mentally scrambling through my first aid training. The girl dove forward but stayed at the surface of the water, skimming along like a Bright Acres condo complex mermaid. I propelled toward them with the fastest freestyle of my life, furious with myself. Why hadn't my body behaved and as scared as I'd ever been? If Mr. Francis died, I gagged, couldn't complete the sentence. If he did, though, could I forgive myself for pausing? How much does a second count? Lifeguard certification 101, every second counts. And that's where I'm going to stop for today. So that's about half of chapter one for you.
0: Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much for reading uh, that uh, sneak preview to uh, what sounds to be a very exciting book um thank you the very first thing that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is like I mean so so your other your other book um half orphans handbook is based on some real life experiences of your own and stuff I mean were you a lifeguard at one point or anything or is this I was never
1: a lifeguard no Um, okay I was I was on a swim team for a brief moment but no
0: okay all right yeah nice I, I also appreciate, I always appreciate an Office reference or drop,
1: so <laughs>
0: I, I had, that stuck out to me immediately and started chuckling at that scene, of course.
1: <laughs> yes, I actually heard that episode saved lives. Um, Did it? Odd. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. I yeah. would have thought the opposite, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I the, the show has saved lives, I think, actually, so... Yeah. Um so I actually have a question for you. So your pathway to publication is kind of an inspiring one. Um and Definitely. a demonstration of how, you know, savvy writers can harness the internet, um which, you know, can can be a wonderful device or uh, you know, the opposite, but in your case you used it for good. Uh can you talk a little bit about how you found your agent and sold your book? And um were you were you a part of the pit mad success story?
1: Um technically uh yeah like yes and no so i pitched my book um on pitmad when i was um already live querying i'd been querying for i think a few weeks and i pitched it there um and a couple of agents liked one of my pitches um so the book was sent to them as well and along the way um, i received my first offer of rep from one of those agents from a pitmad offer Um, And I had actually independently sent uh, this query to my same agent the same day as those. I had found her um, bio somewhere in the pile. And uh, I I wound up with three offers, two of them from PitMad, And um, I went with the agent who was not participating in that, but who was kind of in the mix at the same time. Okay.
0: Awesome. Um, So... How, what's the transition? How, what was the transition from book one to book two? I mean, like how, how did that work out and stuff? Like, did you, um, have this one kind of lined up or, or was there, was there, uh, I guess, what was the process involved, if you will, could you yeah, give some course. In- insight on that?
1: Yep. So, um, well, the book behind me, the half orphan's handbook, my debut was one that had kind of a very streamlined, streamlined process to get out there. Um, for like a long time, it was one year after the other was one stage of that book. Um, And then when my youngest was a newborn, I had the idea for my next book, The Other Side of Infinity. Um, Because the main character, December, she has like this clairvoyance or this foreknowledge, we call it in the book. And um, that stemmed from my desire to want to know everything (laughs) um, that's ever going to happen. So I could like anticipate things and deal with anxiety and all those kinds of things. Um, So I had the idea for that book when my son was newborn. And then I wound up writing it when uh, my debut was out on submission with editors to try to make the time go by faster because it's very out of your control. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what I did for three straight months. I wrote my next book um, and Then like we were, uh, I forget what part of the sub process we were in, but I finished it. I sent it to my agent and I said, you know, if if my first book doesn't sell, please, let's do this one next. Um, And then my debut went through kind of a lot of editors just uh, given COVID and job changes, um, imprint changes. It was kind of wild the way that that went down. And then the final editor that I was with for that book. Uh, got an exclusive on my next book uh, right before this one came out, and um, she wound up wanting to to buy it, so we we stayed with them. Wow,
0: that's quite a journey. Yeah, <laughs> but but I think the thing that that stuck out to me there was that like there's there's very little control sometimes on 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 your zero. end as the writer, but yeah, <laughs> zero control. But yes. the, but you definitely utilized it well by you know saying, well, what can I do with this time? I'll write another. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's all that you can do to be like a hundred percent honest with you. I think no matter what part of the process that you're in, I'm always thinking of whatever my next project is going to be from the second that I put down the pen or whatever, even before I'm done, I always am thinking what my next project will be because you can't control the outcome of a lot of it. So if something fails, then, you know,
0: right. That makes sense to me. Um, Kind of going back to uh, uh, something that I said earlier, because I, I had I alluded to the fact that, you know, the Half-Orphan's Handbook is, um, you know, a, a weaves elements of your own life and history into the work mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, so like Lila, the 16-year-old um, narrator in the Half-Orphan's Handbook, uh, you are a suicide loss survivor. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to take, you know, those painful episodes from your personal life and use them effectively as a work of fiction? Um, and I guess, like, a lot of people like to write about what they know, and a lot of people have experienced, you know, different traumas of different uh, calibers and stuff. And, and so how, how did you gain personally that necessary objectivity without losing the emotional connection? And, and what advice might you have for others who want to explore those, those, those themes um, from their own personal lives and stuff?
1: Yeah, definitely. First, is my connection okay? I just want to make sure you can hear me and everything.
0: Um, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. The The video went out a little out, but
1: yeah, okay. audio sounds, we're good, so sounds okay. good. Okay. Yep. Um, I think I got you. So, um, I mean, first, like everybody is different. I am the sort of person who can maintain some kind of distance from what I write. I mean, in some ways writing about the loss of a father to suicide in a way that was similar to how I lost my father to suicide Uh, was cathartic. Um, I always tell people what actually surprised me about the process more than actually writing and publishing the book was like all the interviews and lead up to the book coming out. I was talking about uh, my dad and going through that in more detail and depth than I go into in the book. Um, And that the number of times that that came up actually surprised me. Like for whatever reason, I kind of didn't think about that as being... um, Part of that process as much, but you know, I totally understand it is because it, 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 it's the impetus behind the book. Um, I really worked to have some major character differences between me and the protagonist Lila in that book because if it was just me, then um, it would be really hard to kind of break up with my own story, I think. Um, in addition, I made sure to include events that like did not happen to me and uh, did not happen to my dad. Um, A lot of the methodologies in the book were different. The addictions were slightly different. Um, And that gave me a little bit of distance from it. I think when you are writing a book that contains elements of personal experience, the most important thing that you can do is try to distance yourself from it in a way that makes you as objective as a reviser as you can Um, so like if you are writing a truth as a fiction then you need to be prepared to change a plot point or to deepen an emotion or invent an emotion that you didn't have or something to make the story more of a story than like a autobiographicalized piece of fiction um so doing that and And creating scenes that like I didn't go to a grief camp, I didn't, I didn't have her journey at all. So being able to distance myself in that way allowed me to see um, what I could be objective about and then certain I think like the grief, uh, arc of that is very similar to the grief that I went through so that was a little bit more authentic and more honest.
0: Okay, so. Getting that distance really helps, you know, like like you said, to help objectively when you're revising the piece and stuff to not uh, be so emotionally entwined in something where it's like, you know, I can't possibly change it this way or that way. But allowing yourself to do so while keeping that that emotional thread that you've shared with the character intact is
1: mm-hmm. is, is,
0: is kind of that um, approach uh, to this particular one is. how how with this up and without giving too much away obviously yeah yeah. uh with this upcoming uh novel have did you i know that you would like to have clairvoyance and stuff uh (laughs) know if you don't have you do not okay so how how do you find that writing method has changed from from one where there's like these personal ties of, of of grief and everything to you know um uh, this. I know that possibly the you know the objectivity remains the same, right? When you're revising things, but like did you find yourself having to mentally just shift focuses and stuff when you went into the second book?
1: Um yes and no. So part of the second book was actually uh stemmed from like a what if question for me as well, besides the character's uh foreknowledge. Um the other character, the lifeguard, is um Part of his character, uh, really his name at this point, not so much as personality or anything, um, is inspired by my friend Nick, who I actually lost uh, tragically when we were, I think, 21. Um, and so part of that was uh, what would happen if Nick didn't die or like what if somebody could have saved him? Um, so going through like the panic and the loss and that kind of thing, especially if somebody your own age, um, putting somebody's life at risk in that book, I was able to kind of tap into that in the smallest of ways. Um, and then I think a lot of this book's process was more freeing because it's so different from my own experience. Um, I am glad that I did debut with uh, it's the first book I ever wrote, the Half Orphan Sandbook. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's great. Um, and in other ways, it could have been a learning book, you know, um, but every book I have written since and and planning to write does sort of carry elements of my life. And I think that that's probably mostly true for a lot of us.
0: That's good. That's good to hear, too, because I think a Mm -hmm. lot of our our students um, will often use, you know, personal experience and stuff. And and there's always that hesitation. But it's like, no, no, (laughs) you should (laughs) definitely use that. That's that's what you know. Right. Like that. Right. what you know, concept and stuff. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't want to hog all all of the questions and stuff. So I'll go ahead and pass it over to my colleague, Paul, here uh, now, who might have a couple of uh, questions for you as well. So take it
2: away, Paul. Thanks, Jacob. Hey, Joan. I do have a few questions, oddly enough.
1: (laughs) Oh, wonderful. (laughs)
2: Um, Actually, going back to something that you said um, in answer to Jacob's question, it reminded me of how oftentimes when when we're looking at students writing um, and they have incorporated some personal element into their fiction and um, a criticism or suggestion is made uh, about it on a story level, and the objection comes back, well, that's but that's not what happened. You know, this mm-hmm. is how it happened to me. And there's a lot of resistance to changing that. But you you um, articulated very, very clearly. I thought um, that at a certain point, the story has to come first. Mm-hmm. So what is that point? How do you decide what that point is?
1: I, I actually have a perfect example. So this is a good question. Um There was one element that is very true for me and my dad's story that was in a prior version of this book. And I had a mentor um, read it. And her biggest critique in her revision suggestions uh, was that this specific element was implausible. It was something that would never happen. And it was Indeed something that had happened and was very plausible and was the big driving force uh, behind the loss of my dad. But I sat back and I was like, okay, I need to hear this criticism because if if people are reading this and it's not plausible, I have two choices. Um, one is, well, I have three. One is I could ignore that criticism, and then I could run into it again in the future. Um, and I was at a point in that book where I felt like I did need to do more work to it, but I didn't know what that was. So I, I did feel like I needed to do something. Um, the second choice would have been to kind of double down on what I had put in there and and give it more texture. I could have like dropped more details. I could have uh, enhanced the plot point. I could have drawn it out or slimmed it down or whatever it needed. I could have really focused on that. Um, and then my third choice was the choice that I wound up going with, which was changing it. So there is still an element in the book that is a version of a truth, I guess you could say, but it's a more plausible one, and it's one that fits seamlessly into the book. And um I didn't need to do more than just change that for it to become a more believable story. And when I had um, oops. when I had uh, more people read it beyond there, Um, they felt like it was a smart choice as well. So I think when you hear something in your own story is not ringing true, like try to do your best to not take that as a criticism of you or your storytelling, but more so what the piece of fiction is in front of you and how you can make it true to that specific story.
2: Yeah, because the story becomes its own thing. Mm -hmm. and that's what you really have to be faithful to right exactly that, that can be hard
1: it it can but a lot of things in this business are very difficult and if you go into it with like your heart wide open um you're gonna get burned so i think it is all part of developing like the ability to withstand rejection it's the ability to take criticism and take feedback and use it to build, instead of trying to build your entire book from clay, you know, use Mm -hmm. all the material at your disposal.
2: That, that also makes me think of something, you know, um, going into, going into the writing business with your heart wide open, I mean, (laughs) in order, in order to, to, to like write fiction that moves people, Mm -hmm. and, and, and to be capable of writing fiction that moves oneself, I mean, you have to have your heart open your heart has to be open. So it's not a matter of like closing off your heart. It's a matter of, it's it's really a matter of leaving your heart open when, when experience is teaching you better because because yeah. publishing is, can be a very rough and unfair. I mean, you debuted your, your novel during COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that wasn't fair. No. Um, so so how, how do you do that? How, how do you manage to keep your heart open while at the same time kind of protecting yourself as as a human being.
1: I mean, it's the same like way I think you need to address any kind of act of life. You know, I think that if you want to keep your heart open, which I'm not advocating closing it, but I am advocating having the ability to, like, keep it open and and protectfully save it. Right. I find a lot of joy in things that are not writing. Um, I make sure I spread my interests around. So if something is bugging me or bothering me, I can go for a walk, I can go for a run, I can take my kids out for ice cream. Um, I think finding different things beyond writing and publishing is really important. Um, and then seeing the things that do move me and, and seeking out books or movies or shows um, or experiences, places, and really trying to invest myself in those as opposed to, you know, focusing on the toxicity. Like I don't sit there and filter in my one-star Goodreads reviews because that would be a terrible, <laughs> terrible way to spend some time.
2: Do you, do, do you read all your reviews?
1: I don't No, I, I do have a trusted friend who sends me the, uh, the highlights, um, and from what i've heard they they look okay on there so far um but i think that like it, it it's very easy for me to let like my mood or my feeling or like if i'm hungry impact what i'm doing so i don't rate books on the internet either i don't i don't want to do that
2: yeah that makes sense yeah uh, i'm going to dip into the chat where we have a question from liz oh, great who asks, aside from writing on these experiences because it's what you know, do you find it cathartic and a way to cope with your losses?
1: Definitely, Um, especially in the first draft when I'm not worrying about what it looks like. I think it's easy to get down the feelings and the emotions. And, um, you know, the the best thing about a book is that you know the arc from beginning to end. So you can see that there is a a rising point and a way for me to... um, heal through some of that um the way that I want my characters to yeah so definitely a way to get some catharsis on the page absolutely
2: so it's the catharsis is a Mm -hmm. personal one for you but it's connected to the catharsis that your characters are going through
1: in my debut, definitely, just because I think I was so close to that subject matter. Um, but, you know, you can take any element of your life, I think. And um, if you're writing joy, like the joy that I'm writing is maybe not the one that my character is experiencing, but my character can feel joy the way that I feel it, you know, in mm-hmm. my chest or whatever that might be. The experience of human emotion can be something that we apply to different scenarios and to different people. and Um, I actually, one question I, uh, when we were trapped this summer going, um, to visit my husband's family, I asked my, uh, then four-year-old, then seven-year-old and my husband, um, who is neither four nor seven, um, what it feels like, uh, for them to have happiness. So my -hmm. daughter said, it feels like butterflies in my tummy. And my son said, I like it in my eyelashes because he's four. Um, and then my <laughs> husband said, "Something else, like, he feels it in his face. And I said, oh, I, I experience it in my chest. So we were just talking about the ways, like, feelings feel differently in everybody. And I can put that into my different characters and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm going to dip into the chat again because they were starting to get a lot of good questions. Um, Adelia wants to know, what is your writing process like?
1: Oh, I wish that I could like give you a beautiful uh, demonstration of it. But, um, well, we've been going through the pandemic, uh, I lost childcare in the middle of it. And uh, my son was two when that started. So that was, uh, that, that blew up my writing process. Um, in an ideal world, now we started kindergarten, my daughter's in second grade. So uh, I typically now write in the mornings when they go to school. Um, And then I do some kind of exercise and lunch. And then sometimes I get it in in the afternoon as well. Um, I am somebody who has like a very chaotic process. I actually write and I'm sorry, um, I write the full synopsis before I begin. Um, So I've had this story percolating in my head all summer. And I finally just sat down and like heaved it out. And I know point A to point B with absolute permission to deviate. That being said, um, I type. I have one notebook per book that I allow myself to card around. Um, and then a lot of times I am driving to and from my kid's school or um, I teach dance. So sometimes I'm driving to dance and I'm actually just dictating into my phone, into my notes, or sometimes I email it to myself. Um, I've written on my hand before if I forget things. Um, I'm all over the place. And then once I have a full draft, I usually print it out and revise from there. And then I punt it out to my trusted critique partners, and then now goes to my agent.
2: Very cool. Uh, I'm gonna hand it back to to Jacob in a minute, but I have one more question, which yeah. is, um, tell me about the connection between dancing and writing for you.
1: Um, definitely movement. I uh, I I am very known to like print out scenes or like write down note cards and kind of like move them around. Um, I also, I have ADHD. So like bopping all over the place is, is very helpful to me. Um, I also, I recently uh, learned that I I'm a person who doesn't have like a, I don't talk to myself in my head. I don't have like any kind of internal monologue going on. Um, I just have like, I think in feelings and in shapes and not even really images, just like gut instinct almost. Um, and like being able to actually like sometimes I block out what my characters are doing, and and movement and song is so you know vital to storytelling too. So there's definitely that in there.
2: By by block out, do you mean like physically you will you will do their actions yourself?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Mhm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right,
2: I'm going to I'm going to throw you back over to Jacob. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Um. So yeah, th- actually,
0: I think what you were kind of uh just talking about can kind of be combined in, in several of the questions that we've received in the chats and stuff. And I'll, I'll go through a couple of them. Um uh, Catherine Henley actually, she says, hi, Joan, first of Katie, all, hi. Katie. Katie. <laughs> so she's, she asked like what your current strategies are for staying focused on one project at a time. Um, and, and Joey Gibson, Austin says, you know, how do you stay motivated and focused? Uh, Tamara writes, you know, how do you, how do you manage and develop the discipline to stay focused? They're all, Related to focusing, I guess. Okay. Like how, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and what I actually heard just now is that, like, you know, one of the things that you get, seem to give yourself permission to do is is to step away um, mm-hmm. a, and and do other things like dance. Um, I mean, I, I gave a, a quite a long list at the beginning of all these other activities that you you do and 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 stuff. Um, how does that you know fold into the process and stuff? And 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 are there other ad, uh, aspects that you kind of uh, Follow as well to make sure that you're, you know, you're staying honest with yourself with the project. Um, And you know, if the project's not going one way or the other, do you switch tracks? You know, like what's what's the process there?
1: Oh man, focus questions, guys. Um, so I am not focused on one project at a time, just given where I am in my career. Um, this book came out in 2021. The paperback actually came out this past April. Um, audio rights have sold. So sometimes I'm like balancing um, promotional stuff for that while editing my next book that's coming out in April and drafting uh, my third book that is now with my agent. Um, I have about two thirds of another YA book drafted. And I set that one aside for right now, because I am really, really focused on my what would be my fifth book. Um, But I know where all those projects are going, so they feel okay to put aside for a little bit if I'm feeling like very fiery about something else. Um, so everything is in different stages. I'm not uh, one thing that I I think is possibly considered a strategy is I'm not doing the same part of each book at the same time. So like for my fourth and fifth books, I'm not going to draft both of those at the same time. I will lose every thread, and I will I will not do well. Um, so like I can handle promotional stuff and editing one project and then I can handle drafting or developing something else. Um, so being in different stages is definitely how I tackle different books in terms of focus. Um, I don't, I, again, (laughs) I have ADHD, so I can either bop all over the place or I can hyper fixate. um, and I often do hyperfixate on the things that I'm working on because I lose myself in it. And it's like all I think about. So if I'm stuck, uh, I will go for a walk or I will go for a run and I will like write the next scene in my head and then I'll just come back and like let loose. Um, and then also, it's really, really good to take breaks. Um, I actually didn't really write this summer much at all. I really just thought toward this next book um and my kids were both home so unless i like n- my house rule is uh, no screens unless it's raining so unless it was raining which it really wasn't this hot summer i didn't have time to sit down and and bang out the words and that was okay i watched tv i read a ton i like i filled the well basically and then i as soon as they went back to school i had this whole synopsis and i'm already 10k into a, my next book so I think taking the time to like really refill your creative wells is all good and all okay. I mean, and whatever that might look like for you, like do knitting, do video games, whatever it is. Um, Something that can inspire you is hiding all over the place. Um, And I often, I won't start a book until I know what the twist is anymore. Um, So I'm often just waiting for the twists to come. And then once they do, I'm like off to the races. So, It's frustrating when it doesn't materialize, but it also, it's okay.
0: I think we're all just really in awe of just how, like, sure, you said I took a break this summer, but I mean, like, you, you got up to, like, well, my fifth book that I'm working on and stuff. So we're, it's it's quite impressive, I think, for all of us on this chat, like, or uh, in the webinar to see that, like, you know, um, you are you do know when to take a step back to, to pursue other avenues and stuff, but to also, you know, uh, stay hyper-focused on a particular subject or topic if it's really, you um, know. Um, attractive to you and it's something that you're Mm -hmm. able to to kind of carry through and everything um and it's funny you had mentioned the uh no uh no screens unless it's raining we also have a similar rule like that in our house but we had to Mm -hmm. bend it because of the drought right yeah kids started asking questions like what is the tv for in the first place if we're not (laughs) using it and stuff but to your point like i mean you you utilize that in in an effective way so it, it really sounds like i mean you got to use your surroundings and where you're at as well to kind of figure out well what it what can help me because I, I see that there's a, a couple of folks in the chat who are who are also um talking about how they have ADHD as well and you know it's like well how do I find that specific avenue to help me and it's mm-hmm. really it really boils down to you, you got to explore all those options and you got to totally.
1: just kind of yeah I, I mean I know a lot of people who like can't really sit down to write so they literally walk and talk and that's okay whatever it is that, you know, jives with you, um, do it. Very individual. That's
0: that's good advice. Yes. (laughs) Um, So speaking, like... We mentioned early on, um, you know, that you, you used to be the um, associate dean uh, for the online MFA program here. Um, so you were the driving force behind it and, you know, d- directed its development, um, served as the program's first dean. Um, so it was a labor of love, uh, I, I, of course. Um, what did you take away from that experience as a writer um, and how how does that help you navigate your um, process?
1: Yeah, so a big uh, running Theme for that uh, development was definitely um, distinguishing it from other MFAs in all of the business focus um, and marketing yourself and and having your bios and um, coupling that with methods for uh, you know developing your thesis um, and I think a lot of students are really resistant, for example, to outlining, but My number one grammar rule is that you need to know the rules to break them. And I think that that was, um, that's an important thing. I think knowing how to outline, even if it does not do it for you in your process, if you can break the outline, which anybody should be able to, um, having a sense of the scope of a story or like the shape of a story, I think is really important. Um, And you might never outline again when you leave Um, and things change all the time, but you know, so far authors still need websites and we still need to more than ever market it and promote ourselves. Um, and having uh, the materials for querying, for example, um, that hasn't changed very much in this business either from what I've heard from my friends, everybody's still writing the same queries that they were, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. Um, having all that background information to try to make a living as a writer I think is really important and I'm really proud that we did focus on that and that um you know we did our best to diversify a lot of the materials and hopefully that's still a focus
0: definitely is yes um and And, and we we are we are doing that in the BA and MA programs as well um and yeah you know I I gotta say like it's been a while I mean i i i i I received my m f a twelve years ago at this point, which mm-hmm. is crazy uh to think about, but uh the, here we are <laughs> twelve years later, and I gotta say, like the three years that I was there, the only focus was on just write a good story, you know that mm-hmm. that's all the focus was. And we got very little guidance and support on on everything that you just listed that that the online MFA offers, which is like Mm -hmm. writing query letters, how to promote yourself and create a a media presence, um, outlining, never mentioned, never. Like Mm -hmm. it was I think the, the fallback advice from my teacher was like, you know, just write, find your voice. Find the void, just find mm-hmm. it, you know, and that's kind of the, the limitations to it. So I love to hear that, like, you know, all of this is kind of it, it has been incorporated into the online MFA and, and that um, students are able to utilize that. Because a lot of these things, like you said, you you use them yourself when you were um, uh, pursuing these uh, two stories on that note. Now, the MFA has a couple of different genres, that, you know, that uh, students can pursue, um, mm-hmm. you know, romance writing and, and, and uh, speculative fiction and stuff your new book is again different from the earlier uh the first book it's 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 Mm -hmm. kind of going into that speculative paranormal slant i know that a lot of our students also like exploring multiple genres and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that as well but um you know sometimes we hear that publishers are a little bit averse to writers kind of striking out into those new directions and genres and stuff. They, they mm-hmm. want you to stick with what you know. Mm-hmm. What, what do you take away from that though? Let I me mean, like, what, what was your experience with the second book and, and do you see there being a change in the winds or, or what have you where, where people are more open to, to allowing writers to explore multiple genres like that? Or uh, what advice would you have for our students um, who might want to explore that as well?
1: So I think one thing that has not changed is you still need to be able to go into a bookstore and know where your book is going to sit on a shelf. Um, I think romance bleeds into many, if not most genres, because it's often the B story of um, anything, right? Often um, it's the object of a fantasy novel or what have you. There's definitely been a rise in... uh, what I'm kind of calling contemporary with a speculative twist. Um, and that is appearing in a lot of what we, what we know as a book club fiction. Um, the, uh, or like there's almost some kind of dystopian vibes coming back to a little bit, I think. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that publishers are getting more generous with cross genre. I think that you can have a primary genre and um, of deviate from there so like i said romance bleeds into a lot but um there is definitely a rise in uh contemporary works so it like takes place in our world with a tiny speculative twist and as long as you i think ground it and make it believable it uh it does find its spot hopefully
0: i've kind of noticed that with um actually uh uh Someone who who I took a couple of classes with out in Boise State uh, as a guest writer was Anthony Dorr, who who yeah. tends, tends to do that a lot, too, where, like, mm-hmm. you know, his latest one, of course, is is fiction, but he obviously has to explore nonfiction elements to make it feel real, like that mm-hmm. you are experiencing the fall of Constantinople um, uh, in one part of the book. Or, you know, later on, you're suddenly in the science fiction world where you're on a ship in outer space and everything like that. Um how like, I guess like when, when you're ex- exploring like a book and, and when you're finding that that choice and stuff and saying, you know, this is where I want it to be on the shelf and stuff. If you start writing it and and you start discovering that, you know, actually there are different elements that might shift this into a completely different genre or something. Mm-hmm. Do you just go with it or do you or, or mm-hmm. do you say, wait a minute, you know. This is my speculative fiction piece, you know. I got to keep the the blinders on, or how do how do you how do you go with that?
1: I I go with it. I go with with it. Serve the story. Yeah, I mean, um, the book that I've got about two thirds of the way done uh, started out as just like a standard YA contemporary, and then it 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 wasn't working, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I figured out why, and I was able to weave a speculative element into it. And uh, I know how it's going to end. Again, I've kind of distanced myself from it for a little bit. I'll probably rejoin it in January. But um, yeah, I I think anytime you discover a thread that's going to possibly uh, make your story better, um, explore it. Sorry, I mean, you don't have to like take your files and delete all of them and you know, start on page one, but like explore it, write a chapter where it's incorporated or rewrite a scene and then see if it's, you know, bounce back and forth. Definitely sleep on it. Um, (laughs) I'm a person who like gets an idea and then obsesses about it for two days and then I never think about it again. So I write everything down and then if I come back to it in a week and I'm like, oh, this is still a good idea or if I haven't stopped thinking about it, especially, then I, I have a better gut feeling. And I also, if you can find, you know, trusted people, like I run everything by my writing partners, everything, I run everything by my agent. Um, and once you kind of get like the realistic voices and the and the people who you trust, who are going to be like, no, that's terrible, or um, something, then, then try it. And, at the end of the day, if you write something that doesn't go anywhere, you still leveled up yourself
0: right and that I mean that's excellent advice i think and and it it's it kind of runs counter to what a lot of people I think kind of have in their heads where like if you're writing something and you're stuck with it, and then you you start having these other ideas that seem you know out of this world, like wait a minute, am I I can't add a science fiction element to this or I can't. So then it's, it's the crumple up the novel and throw it in the trash can and be like, I am a a failure (laughs) and stuff. Right. Rather than saying, well, wait a minute, why don't I just try it? You know, why don't I just give it a shot and see what happens? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that, uh, that usually can create some of the most unique, um, you know, pieces of writing along the way and stuff as well. Um, I think that's excellent advice. And then also, of course, uh, sleeping on it. And then, you know, if, if you're continuing to think about it, you know, that might be a sign that it's okay to expand. Um, a lot of the time, I think, um, I noticed this, especially with with, with um, fiction pieces and stuff that I've seen in classes, is that students will really put those blinders on and say, no, this, I am writing this specific story um, mm-hmm. without that willingness to say, well, wait a minute, what if I did throw an alien in there on page three? What would happen to it and stuff? And but doing that actually can can be beneficial to one's writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's great advice to share. Um. So thank you. uh, Paul, did you did you want to hop back on and, and ask a couple more questions or I'm happy to uh, I, keep going? <laughs> no,
2: I can I can I can ask a question All right. or two. Um, awesome. Uh, what you were what what you were just saying in, in response to Jacob's uh, question made reminded me of something you said earlier in this discussion, which was that. You don't write a book anymore until you know the twist. Mm -hmm. Um, The twist might be a plot element, but as you were talking about, you know, the addition of speculative fiction or or paranormal elements, whatever, it occurred to me that the twist of a book could also be something more like that, like a blend of genres. You're like Mm -hmm. you figure out like, oh, this this is a seasoning that's missing from the recipe, Mm -hmm. for example. And is thats 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 that is that is that is that is that. Is that something that has happened to you in terms of like adding mixing genres?
1: Yes, I think I can say yes, that has happened. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't want to give away anything in particular, but I think that the twist definitely is dependent on a lot of the speculative things that I play with. Um, But then also sometimes there's more than one twist. Like. uh I think a show that does twists really beautifully is um Severance. Uh, oh, a yeah. new show. Yeah. Yeah. Um my husband hates watching TV with me because I just like pace and I say what's going to come next. And that was a show where I felt like <laughs> wait what's wait what's going to happen. So I like when I am being surprised and I think about yeah. how I can do that for my reader.
2: Yeah. We we writers tend to spoil a lot yeah, of TV shows everything. for our partners.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: um so even though you're bringing a lot of different genres into your work uh you're also kind of um at least so far it seems like you're you're sticking to the ya overarching genre um do you find that there are and it you know it seems to me as somebody that's kind of I'm not super familiar with YA, but I've read a lot of it because my, you know, I, my stepdaughter was was a YA at one mm-hmm. point. Um, but it seems to me that there the general a general trend that one can see in, in, in YA is is like what was once considered verboten, off limits, taboo, is is progressively no longer taboo. Mm-hmm. Just all of these things that were that once could never be um, uh, treated in a YA novel are now fair game. Mm -hmm. Is that still true? Is there anything left or or is the or is the field now wide open just as it might be in, um, you know, contemporary adult fiction, for example?
1: It's it's pretty wide open. Um, I do think uh, YA is more at risk of having banned books uh, in some states than some adult fiction, Um, you know, because Uh, parents feel strongly about what their teens are reading um you typically don't see uh some of the more graphic things in YA that you might see in you know adults thrillers or fantasies or stuff like that but some of the books I've read in YA have gotten kind of gory um and graphic and some have not many many do not delve into that um uh I think it all depends on the author and the subject matter and that kind of thing. Um, And actually, just to touch upon your first part of this, um, I'm kind of splitting into YA and adult from my own personal career. So my third book is adult. Okay. Yeah.
2: And that's that's the one that is with your agent now.
1: Yes. Yep.
2: Do you have a do you have a title? Can you share that or is that asking Uh, too much?
1: No. Well, I do have a title, but. Um, If it sells, it'll probably get changed because I'm a terrible titler. But um, that one is called, again, Do Over Repeat. Oh, cool. Yeah.
2: Was was the Half-Orphans Handbook your original title of that book?
1: Nope. (laughs) Um, I never – it was originally titled Dead Parents Camp, which I even knew at the time wasn't great because it sounded like a zombie camp.
2: Um,
1: Mm -hmm. And then – it went out on sub with the title uh, The Truth Between Death and Daffodils, which also didn't feel quite right. Um, so this one kind of became a little more snappy, I think. And then uh, The Other Side of Infinity was originally titled It Ends with December.
2: Wow. Okay. And did you come up with the alternate title or the what ultimately became the the, the title yourself? Yes. Or, yeah. Yep.
1: I pitched a bunch of alternates and, and, the, and then we went with the one that they liked.
2: I remember when I when my first novel was was with my agent. Um, he just made fun of the title because it was <laughs> it was so bad. I, I, my title for it was Herwood, and oh. he he kept calling it Durwood, <laughs> like a character from Bewitched or something. And he shamed me into into changing it. So I too ha- suffer from like bad title syndrome. <laughs> it's a awful fate for a, for a writer. But you've done very well with your titles, I think. Oh, thank you. Um and uh I'm going to turn it back over to Jacob because I think we're we're approaching the end of uh, this wonderful session.
1: We
0: are, and I think we do have a, uh, one more question I think, uh, well two yeah. more. Um sure. the one centers around characters and we've kind of talked about it a little bit already. Uh, I think kind of with plot where if something mm-hmm. If something goes off track or changes, sometimes just go with it and see where it leads you. Don't delete everything. Don't throw out everything beforehand because you never know. You might want to come back to it. Um, right. Kind of tying that back into what you were saying, too, about, um, you know, young young adult writing. And stuff, what What's taboo, what's off limits and what's not and stuff. You know, when your characters do want to go in a different direction than you want, do you do – you, do you find more often, do you go with it or do you uh, redirect? Like, I mean, like. I
1: would, I mean, I, again, it's kind of the same. Like I go with it. It might end up it. being deleted, but if there's like something that's screaming at me, I'll explore it and see if it's something that works. And if not, like we might delete the chapter and that's okay.
0: All right. Awesome. <laughs> and the final question from Joey was, uh, do you need beta writers? Wink, readers? <laughs> wink, wink,
1: wink, Aww. wink. So.
0: <laughs> well awesome well thank you so much joan this has been such a pleasure i miss you terribly uh we've worked together for uh geez it must have been, it was like five years i think so
1: it was. it was a good time
0: it was we would uh have some fun down in manchester and everything when we all got <laughs> together for graduation and stuff but um thank you again for coming um and for sharing your work with us today very exciting the new book i can't wait to uh read it um, um thank you Everyone who's on the uh, call for it, for more about Joan and her work, uh, please visit her website, uh, which I am adding to the chat right now, joanfsmithbooks.com. You can also oh, follow cool. her on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and
1: Pinterest. Um, oh, at- yeah, that one's on there, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: you can, yeah. Is that okay <laughs> that they follow you? Oh, on yeah, the- yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm an open book. <laughs> okay, make- so, yeah. So those are all all open uh, for you to uh, explore and everything. Um, so thank you again, Joan. Um, we're so glad to have everyone here this evening. Um, before I close out too, I just want to send a reminder to everyone um, to not forget to check out the uh, Penman Review website at penmanreview.com uh, for more information on our annual fall fiction contest. I've also included a link in the chat for that. Our next word-for-word event is scheduled for mid-November. We're going to feature a guest screenwriter and author, Robin Wasserman, most recently known for writing uh, for Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, the latest Star Trek television show. So that'll be really fun. But for tonight, thank you again, Joan. It was a pleasure. Um, Look forward to talking to you again soon. And, uh, yeah, just wonderful to see you.
1: (laughs) Thanks, everybody. It's nice to be here. I appreciate it. Take care, everyone. Have a good night. Good night.